0: We've got a sixth round of screaming, murderous Winnie the Pooh, a rock doc, some dark
1: comedy and a Woody Harrelson basketball movie. I'm Van Conner. And I'm Adam Ball and this is Offscreen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Hello and welcome back to the show if you are returning and welcome if it's the first time. We're going to start with some brand new movies as we do every single week. Um, So this first one actually has really caught my eye being a musician. It is a journey through the New York music scene of the early 2000s. I would like to have been able to jump to some big artists that were around at the (laughs) time. But the thing is, A, my memory doesn't serve me that well. And B, I don't really know who was big in New York in in the 2000s.
0: Do you know? What? I know a few of them, so let me let me pull up pull pull up, pull up the list. I will say as well that internally, I love that we're starting with this because I know you, you often like to intro with you know hello wherever you're listening if it's, uh, it's <laughs> or in the bath. So of course the first film we're talking about is a documentary called Meet Me in the Bathroom, which kind of fits nicely into your uh, your, your kind of kink there. But uh, yeah, so this largely <laughs> the bands that leap to mind for me are the Strokes and the Yeah Yeah Yes. Those are two that 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 come up. There's there's a lot more from around that kind of era, but it is East Coast, early two thousands, in New York, that kind of grungier music. It does largely fixate on the Strokes of all the bands. It does seem to largely follow them. And I'll be really honest, not a band I'm overly familiar with. Like I I was, you know, I was more of a Hives kind of got the hives, the vines. Those were more my early 2000s, but I, obviously I'm aware of The Strokes. You know, I, I've seen a Transformers movie. I'm aware of the iconic t-shirt. Uh, but yeah, a, a documentary takes you inside the world of the music scene of New York in the early 2000s, largely through the prison of The Strokes, but does involve other bands. I will get a list for you as we're doing the clip. Have a listen. Julian was dealing with a lot of nervousness. I was like, how is he scared? He's so good but he wrote all of the songs. His nervousness came out of that
1: perfectionism. So does this basically kind of flip around lots of different bands from the 2000s or does it focus more on three or four or how does that work?
0: So it largely, largely revolves around the strokes. You get other bands in there. I have pulled up the list, incidentally, if you're interested. It does also feature the likes of LCD Sound System, as I said, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, TV on the radio, and the Mouldy Peaches. I think you can hear one member of the Mouldy Peaches in the clip there as well. Um, like I say, not really absolutely my forte. I think this was, this was maybe, this was kind of during the iPod era for me, so I was getting more into my retro hits at this point, my retro rock, as it were. Um, but yeah, this was fascinating stuff. I mean, it's not in the top tier of music docs that you'll find. I mean, we saw that one, the Don, uh, the Don Letts documentary, uh, Rebel, Rebel Dread, this past year, which I think was, now that's how you do a music document. That was insightful and punchy and powerful. This did feel very service y to me it's a good doc and everything but i think it does depend on you kind of being a pre-existing fan being nostalgic and and into this specific era of music like i said i'd imagine you'll have a good time with this i'm looking forward to you seeing it seeing what you get out of this because i think it might be more within your wheelhouse you're you're more the music guy out the two of us than i am you know what i mean
1: I mean, this is this is kind of what concerns me about this movie or documentary, whether I would enjoy it or not, because early 2000s, I had I, I was kind of into my radio career. So generally, the only music I got to listen to was the cheesy pop that I was playing on my shows. So, um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to recognize many of the bands. One thing that's just stood out to me with you naming a few is how really badly named some of the bands were in the early 2000s.
0: Yeah, but do you not know, remember in the 2000s all you needed to have a band was just a, you had the word the and then you just insert whatever you want after yeah. it. Uh, that, was, that was how you named a band in the 2000s. Also, incidentally I work for you, man,
1: so the only music I ever hear is the stuff you play <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you'll know where I'm coming from then because it, kind of, so I it does limit you. Yeah, it limits your knowledge.
0: Yeah, I only know about the existence of Harry Styles because of you. <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he won't be featuring in this because he was probably not even a glint in his father's eyes at the time oh, of this.
0: Barely a glint in the milkman's eye back in the day <laughs> at this point, Harry
1: Styles. But um, no, i say...
0: I did go along with this. I thought it was quite well captured. There's a you know wealth of archival material as you would expect from from something that comes with this level, because obviously it's a subgenre that comes with a certain amount of dedication, and you know it's a scene that comes with a certain amount of passion and love as you know as, as anything in music tends to do. I will also say, actually, as far as music documentaries we've covered recently, that I think we're actually better than this, the Chumba Wumba documentary. I thought actually was more insightful than this. What was that called? I Get Knocked Down? Yeah. Like you, wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't think you could make a decent documentary out of Chumbawamba, but I live to be surprised. Um, this, though, I don't know. I, th- I think this will go down with, definitely with fans, and I think fans of the music scene of the time, certainly. Uh, um, in terms of the uh, the talent on there, no one particularly dazzled me. It's uh, written and directed by Will Loveless and uh, Dylan Southern. Again, not really documentary makers I know all that much about. But, of course... Rocking soundtrack. I mean, I was toe tapping all the way through. This, there's the odd hit in there that you're like, oh, I remember this one. Yeah, I remember this from that Lager advert back in the day. And, you know, it, it's very much one of those uh, kind of documentaries. But say uh, the fans can see this. It's out today. I think it's in select cinemas. Uh, from today, it's called Meet Me in the Bathroom. It's based on the book of the same name, which did sell, did shift quite a few copies, and is regarded as one of the better chronicles of news, of the music scene of that period as far i've not read that book as a as a you know adaptation i would imagine this feels like it fits pretty closely with what i know of that book what i've I've been able to glean of it so if you're a fan of it check it out if you're a fan of the music scene of that era check it out if you like a good music doc you know check this one out anyway it's not boring by your stretch of the imagination it's just not particularly nostalgic for me and obviously not gonna be particularly nostalgic for you but obviously is going to be nostalgic for you know not insignificant the number of people out there so you know it's out today it's called meet me in the bathroom in select cinemas from today check it out
1: lovely all right well we are going to continue with more new movies on the way in a moment Winnie the Pooh goes all chucky on us (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I can't wait to hear about this one I remember you talking about it last week so um, we're going to talk about Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey and also The Middleman both of those to be reviewed by Van in a minute stay right there And we are back uh, now. We're sticking with a couple of more new, new brand new movies that are out this week. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm losing my words because who would have thought Winnie the Pooh would be involved in some kind of uh, blood and honey movie turning all Chucky on us? I mean, I want to hear all about this.
0: Yeah, this, this is one of those things, this is because of lapsed copyright. So back in January last year, Winnie the Pooh, the original novel, finally entered the public domain, and they had this script in the barrel waiting for that day to come. So they pretty much started filming this the day after it became legal to do so. Uh, so basically, you've got uh, certain concepts from Winnie the Pooh, now in the public domain, rev- uh, revised here in this sort of revisionist dark horror sequel to Winnie the Pooh. So the idea is Krista Robin and the adventures of Winnie the Pooh and the gang from Hundred Acre Woods all happened, as we know them. Then Christopher Robin got older, went off to college, and left them behind. And uh, without him, they struggled. And uh, turned all feral, all savage, set out for revenge on Christopher Robin, which they get in the first ten minutes of this movie. And then we get uh, a, a, a set of young, sexy teens come to the you know Hundred Acre Woods on vacay, airbnb or whatever, and find themselves the new potential victims of Winnie the Pooh. And the Hundred Acre Wood gang. Um, I've got a clip for you. This is. There are only two clips available for this. One is an action sequence in which, largely visual, in which Winnie the Pooh massacres someone with a sledgehammer, and, uh, <laughs> and the other one, the other one is what we're about to play. This is a an expository clip. This is from the best sequence in the whole movie. The movie's eighty six minutes long. This takes place at the very beginning of the movie. This is an animated intro that. Depicts this revisionist introduction. I should stress as well before I play this. This clip is what we get after we are told that in the, uh, in the, after the departure of Christopher Robin, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet and their friends ate Eeyore. And thus, Eeyore was no more. And the trauma of this act warped the minds of the group. They became feral and developed a hatred to all things human, and in particular, Christopher Robin for abandoning them. A pact was made. They renounced their humanity and returned to their animalistic roots,
1: swearing never to talk again this is so opposite to what you would expect from <laughs> obviously uh, a Winnie the pooh movie it's like it would be the equivalent of the purge the musical like it is the complete opposite hey hey i'm just
0: gonna throw it out there
1: uh, get save
0: me a seat for purge the musical i'm there opening <laughs> night like i will watch the hell out of the purge the musical good lord <laughs> well that's um, an idea that, Someone's sitting on a gold mine with that one, Purge the Musical. The rate they keep chucking out sequels, prequels, spin offs, and TV adaptations of The Purge won't be long. Um, right, speaking of, incidentally, this is not exactly going to be a one off because you and I just pulled up the director's IMDb profile right here mm. and discovered that not only is he working on Blood and Honey 2, he's also working on Peter Pan Neverland Nightmare, which might be the first time anyone's ever said Neverland Nightmare without Michael Jackson being involved. Um, it, It's it's uh, it's one of those movies that you watch. And you do think, right? All of the creative energy that went into this went into literally the concept. What you sit through with Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey feels. like, Have you ever been to a screen park, Adam? You know, one of those like live horror immersive experiences.
1: Oh, what where where you walk around a corner and someone jumps out and scares the hell out of you? Yeah, yeah. You ever, you've you've done one of those.
0: Yeah. You know, when you're waiting in line to go in, because I did The Stranger Things, one, Stranger Things one a few months ago. I did uh, The Howl for Halloween. I've done Saw, Halloween Ends, a bunch in the last couple of years. And while you're waiting in line, usually there's a, an expository video on, like really badly acted expository video. You watch The, you know, the Stranger Things experience It's Matthew Modine and, and, you know, like, uh, what do you call them? Sam from Lord of the Rings, et cetera. You know, they're doing like little talking head bits. Backstories. That's what this feels like all the way through except for a few bits that then just feel like you're watching someone's YouTube footage of a walkthrough of a live horror experience. It's inventive enough in the gore department but naff all else elsewhere. It's a really bare bones director video, kind of grisly, low budget, low ambition. When we talk about, we, need, we are talking about like men in rubber Winnie the Pooh masks, for instance. Like savage <laughs> bear masks. Like a full size, like, you know, 300 pound adult man. Oh no. Like, and, and what they're trying for here is like the hills have eyes, but it's the hundred acre woods have eyes. Uh, I know, you've literally got a dude in like a warthog mask, you know, with the tusks and that's Piglet, you know, and they're just wandering around like covered in gore with sledgehammers, just, you know, massacring teens, and you're like, yeah, this is Cool and all, but like this is what you wanted to waste the Winnie the. Po- do you remember about a month ago, someone was trying to flog the Mister Blobby costume. They were trying oh, to flog the original. Yeah. There was a whole thing that it went for forty-two grand on eBay, and then the buyer welched out at the last minute. One of the conditions they put on that—I don't know if you're aware of this—one of the conditions they put on the sale was you couldn't use it to create any new media. Yeah, specifically right. because they were afraid that someone would do something like this. Mr. Blobby uh, the murderer. Yeah, I mean, to be really honest, if I spent money on a Mr., on one of the original Mr. Blobby costumes, I couldn't. I wouldn't be able to wait to make the slasher movie. Like, <laughs> I, I would. Like, you know, the Jeff Blobbington slasher origin story is absolutely the Mr. Blobby movie. He wouldn't would be able make. to get away
1: very fast, though, would he? He'd <laughs> make his noise, wobble
0: and make the noise. But. I guarantee you, though, what we've just done in in that conversation involves more creativity than anything you'll find in this. We watched it at the Prince Charles. They, they, They made it, tried to make it a bit of a retro horror experience for us. doesn't work at all. It's mostly just plodding and dull with gore. It's not a particularly good slasher. It's not a particularly inventive or imaginative slasher. Directorially, it feels like. I mean, I think it's Jonathan. Not Jonathan. Uh, Reese Frake Wakefield. That's his name. who's was doing the sequel and the Peter Pan spinoff. And I'll be honest with you, it feels like a starter movie for a career that you're going to begin 10 years from now. Like, 10 years from now, this guy could maybe be Jake, uh, Jake Scott. Mm. But on the back of this, like right here, right now, there's not an awful lot going for this. I don't see there being much market for a sequel, and I don't see the Peter Pan Pan one being much good after this either.
1: I don't particularly want to see one of my childhood heroes turn into a murderer, if I'm honest, so um, I probably would avoid it just on that premise.
0: It's not even that original, because the Banana Splits movie did this a couple of years ago. They made Banana Splits into a movie, and they made it a slasher. And we've had Willy's Wonderland in the meanwhile as well, with the... With Nicolas Cage, which, you know, is be better than any Five Nights at Freddy movie could be. But alas, <clears throat> that's Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Frankly, I'd rather bleed whilst gorging on Honey. But, alas, let's talk about The Middleman, which is also out today. Oh, 19-
1: yeah. I've seen yeah. the trailer to this. Basically, I, I almost fell asleep in the two-minute trailer. All I could get from it is that it's a man that has to tell people bad news. I'm hoping there's what? a twist.
0: I can, I mean, to be honest, I can relate because it feels like all I do with my free time is like, you know, with all my time is just give people bad news about movies. Uh, right, this was marketed <laughs> to us, right? This is genuinely sent out, marketed to us by publicists. as, uh, so, You know, if you like the Coen Brothers, you'll love this. But, oh, can't wait. I, lo- I love a good Coen John. Let's have a look. So I watched this, The Middleman, which, as you say, is about a man who lives in a small town that's accident-prone. There's accidents galore in this small town. And he is hired by the police because he's just an approachable everyman, sort of likable everyman type. Needs a job, and they hire him to be the guy that has to deliver all the bad news to all the accident victims' families in this small town. And that's his job. He's the guy that gets to go around and deliver the bad news. However, his own life is upended when there's no accidents in the town the accident stop one day only for his best mate to get into a sort of weird accident accidental misunderstanding in a bar and he's then killed he smacks his head on a jukebox after an altercation with a man and he's dead and he then finds himself put in the difficult position of having to be a witness for the only accident in the town. Um, This turns out to not be the first accident that he's directly connected to, and it starts to raise some questions that start to unravel his life. Have a listen, and as you just pointed out about the trailer, see if that tone carries through this clip for you, Adam. Mom, I was just playing in the yard, you know? And I I didn't even touch till that... Well, maybe I touched it, but it wasn't... It wasn't the fall that killed him. It was the scythe in the grass. It
1: was no accident. I saw what I saw.
0: But it was an accident. It was wrong. And now I've been struck by tragedy again. Is it over yet? (laughs) Ha! Yeah, well, okay, so. First of all, Norwegian director Bent Hamer directed this. Now, I uh, someone misspelt it. Someone misspelt his name on one of the press releases that got sent to me. So I genuinely watched this entire movie thinking it was directed by Bent Hammer. So <laughs> thank you, thank you for that, publicists. Thank you because that was that was a very amusing morning. Brilliant. Um, alas, Bent Hammer does not direct this. Bent Hamer directs this. Norwegian director of I think Eggs and Factorum. Um, largely uh, European cast in this as well. Uh, in the lead, you've got. I'm gonna have to look up his his, his name in the lead here. Um, <clears throat> It plays it very Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, Palsver Hagen, who plays uh, Frank, our lead, basically the middleman, as it were, is, I think, you could hear him in the clip, is largely the reason to see the movie. Beyond that, what you get, again, feels like a petrol station DVD bin sort of attempt to cash in on Three Billboards. That's what I felt all the way through it. Feels not like the Coen brothers at all, and a lot more like... This Martin McDonough guy's doing all right. Let's uh, see if we can get some of that scratch. And that's what you get all the way through this. Nicely enough shot, and it does have a very, uh, very stylistic, very European sensibility to its cinematography, the way it's staged, the way it's framed, and even those performances. But that labored feeling doesn't quite work with the quirkier sensibilities that its concept, that its story seem to keep reaching for like i say uh, the performance by hagen in the lead is very good but a bit subdued and again fits more in line with that european aesthetic it just doesn't quite work this is one that oh, it's in select cinemas so today from your art house cinemas go and see if you are someone that frequents the art house cinema because this probably is going to be in your wheelhouse if however you're going to see this at screen 19 in Cineworld world at 8:30 on a tuesday you know it's only showing for the day kind of thing probably not going to be for you you know what I mean? It's it's called The Middleman. It's out, uh, it's out today in select while. Nowhere near as good as the short-lived 2000 sci-fi series, The Middleman, which starred Natalie Morales and was like Men in Black, the TV show, way better middleman than this. And didn't have any bent hammers involved either. Um, <laughs> and you can pick that up on DVD. I recommend that wholeheartedly. This, a lot less so.
1: Yeah, does it doesn't appeal to me at all doesn't sound like there's enough um and action in this to uh, to draw me through to the end (laughs) i would definitely fall asleep all right well um we are back in a moment with uh, a very wholesome movie i would say we're going to look at champions So stay right where you are So we are back. Uh, another new movie to talk about now that Van has seen and I haven't. It's called Champions. And from what I can gather, it's about a basketball coach who is ordered by a court to manage a team of players with intellectual disabilities. It's got a good soundtrack because I heard tub thumping in the trailer that I saw. and it <laughs> And it looks like a wholesome movie. I have a feeling you're going to say it's complete opposite. No, not at all. I'm going, to, I'm going to say nice
0: things about it, actually. Um, right. I will say, first of all, your, uh, your, your description there was very tactful. Uh, the film is a little bit less so. And, okay, so first of all, this is the solo directorial debut of Bobby Farrelly, whose brother is Peter Farrelly. They, together, have been directing for decades as the Farrelly brothers. They are responsible for... Not one, not two, not three, but several, probably about a half dozen of some of my favorite comedies of all time, including Dumb and Dumber, Something About Mary, Kingpin, loads of great, gross-out comedies. They even did that remake of The Heartbreak Kid with uh, Ben Stiller from the late 2000s. Um, Yeah, they can't make a sequel to save their lives, as Dumb and Dumber proved. But yeah, and of course, Peter Farrelly went on to win some Oscars a couple of years ago because he made Green Book as well, which came up a conversation earlier when a friend of mine asked me, "Did Roma win Best Picture?" I can't remember. Oh, nah, Green Book, mate. So, yeah, Never you want to relive that trauma, yeah, Green Book won that year. Yeah, none of us could believe it at the time either. <laughs> Wait until you see this weekend. Anyway, his brother has now gone the solo route as well. He's not swinging for Oscars. He has directed Champions. Champions is a remake of a foreign language film. I think it's a French film, actually. French might be Spanish. I'll have a look in a moment. Um, uh, same name. And it is about, effectively, it's the plot structure of The Mighty Ducks. So you have the sort of washed out adults, has a drink driving accident, is sentenced to community service, and his community service is, well, you've got to go and coach a non-professional team. In this case, the team he is sent to coach are a group of, I think they're in their early 20s, young adults, each with, you know, all with their own uh, various learning disabilities or their intellectual disabilities or their special educational needs, etc. And he has to learn to overcome his own innate prejudices, winds up becoming sort of a champion for them. But this largely is confined to just can they get through a series of basketball games? Can they get to, you know, the next challenge? Can they get to the next championship? Can they get to the next league, etc.? cetera? And the coach, of course, in this case, is Woody Harrelson, who also finds himself, because you've got to in all of these movies, entering into a will-they-won't-they they relationship with the older sister of one of his star players, played by Caitlin Olson, better known as Sweet D. Reynolds, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So congratulations, Farrelly. You got my money straight off the bat. As soon as you get an always sunny cast member in there, goddammit, it, you're entitled to my money. Have a listen. This is Harrelson meeting arguably one of the stronger players of his team one of, one of the one of the more uh, one of the more accomplished players of his team, who has been off for a great deal of time at this point, having been uh, having been uh, s- serving injury time, I believe. And she is my favorite character in this whole movie. Think uh, Icarly in School of Rock. That's what you're gonna get here, have a listen.
1: Who the hell are you? I'm
0: Marcus, the coach. Uh, welcome to the team, Cosentino.
1: Look, don't flirt with me, okay? Let's keep this professional. I'm Ms. Cosentino to you.
0: Beg pardon, Ms. Cosentino. You know we're going to play basketball. We're not surfing. I know. Well, what's with the boogie board?
1: Sometimes these things come in handy.
0: Okay, a boogie board.
1: Yes, you do you I do me, okay? Where do you get this guy? He just showed up one day. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, you read my mind because I was about to say this has Jack Black um, written all over it in the the style of rock... um, Was it Rock Band, did you say? I forgot what the movie was
0: called. Uh, School of Rock. School School of Rock. rock.
1: It just reminded... The premise reminds me of School of Rock.
0: Very much so. Now, that is the kind of archetypical underdog story that this is going for. Uh, you've got farrelly on board so with farrelly time was that you could expect that that meant gross out comedy and the farrelly brothers do not exactly have a rosy history with uh, with with sensitivity in this particular arena so i was uh, I, I was kind of dreading this if i'm honest the movie is a dramedy that veers i think slightly more towards the drama not by choice, but I think because of both restraint and just a lack of funny. It's, it's not that funny. It's charming, but I don't think it's as funny as it needs to be. You're certainly not getting School of Rock level lass out of it. You're definitely not getting Mighty Duck's charm out of it. What you're getting is something that sits very awkwardly in the middle. And Woody Harrelson joyously playing to time, just literally showing up and being Woody Harrelson. I mean, this is another installment of the ever-expanding Woody Harrelson basketball franchise. There's a, a whole sub of movies that are just about Woody Harrelson playing basketball, it seems. And it's a fine addition to that. I think if you do go and see this at the multiplex this weekend, I don't think you're going to come out feeling like you wasted your money. I think you're going to... You, you'll have... So, there's a couple of good laughs in it. And like you say, the sequences like the tub-thumping uh, sequence, in which they all bond over singing tub-thumping and things like that. Uh, it's, a, it's heartwarming at times in the way that Harrelson sort of, round, you, know, sort of uh, you know, softens to his players, etc. But I do think that the reason to see the movie above all else is the interplay, the back and forth, between Woody Harrelson and Caitlin Olsen, uh, Sweet D from Always Sunny. And they spark off each other very well, largely because her character, who she's kind of been typecast as on Always Sunny, and all the other things she's done, because she kind of only really plays the character, is very close to what Woody Harrelson does just naturally anyway, that sort of grizzled loser type persona <laughs> that Woody Harrelson <laughs> likes to put on. They're both kind of doing it. that, But they're different kinds of losers. And it's just fun watching them kind of spark off of them. Um, uh, it was worth noting, this is another reunion of sorts as well for Farrelly with uh, Woody Harrelson because of Kingpin uh, in the late 90s as well, which is the bowling movie. So this is, I think, Woody Harrelson's second movie. I yeah. could be wrong. It might be his third. But at least his second movie uh, with the Farrelly's, or, or at least one of them in this case. Uh, directorially, I don't think Peter has much to worry about at Christmas dinner this year like I don't think Bobby's anywhere near as strong a director as his brother his material certainly isn't quite as tight like I I, I think you hesitate to say this is as good a movie as Green Book like I don't think Green Book's an amazing movie but I think it's a stronger movie than this this kind of feels like an awkward halfway point and you do feel several times through it that it's there's an awkwardness to the sensitivity of it it does feel like it's slightly too afraid to risk causing offence. That the sacrifice, the payoff, the trade-off that's been made for that has been at the expense of its comedy. And there's gags in there that really land. Um, Johnny, who you could hear in the in, in, the, in the clip there, for instance, Caitlin, uh, Kate Norton's younger brother, introduces himself at one point as your homie with an extra chromie, which I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <it> had me... <laughs> absolutely rolling around the floor in, in hysterics like that was absolutely the strongest gag in the whole movie it was just him rocking up and re- introducing himself gambling a homie with an extra chrome," like brilliant love it i came away from it and i couldn't stop all the way through thinking of and i'm gonna have to revisit this movie the ringer with uh johnny knoxville from the mid 2000s did you ever see the ringer
1: no no i know i know about it never saw it mm
0: much lambasted comedy starring Johnny Knoxville and I think Brian Cox from Succession was his father and it's one where Johnny Knoxville d- discovers the existence of the Special Olympics pretends to be learning disabled and enters the Special Olympics oh dear. yeah I found myself thinking about that a lot all the way through this movie I, I, there's no real comparison point but I was just thinking that that is kind of the other end of the spectrum to this movie so you can read into that whatever you like. This feels like the much more terrified answer. The much more sanitized, much more overly sensitive answer to The Ringer. I mean, don't ever watch The Ringer. I mean, I, I, it has its moments. Don't ever watch it. Whatever you do. It's a terrible <laughs> movie. It's absolutely apparent. It's offensive to an absolutely incredible degree that you can't believe it ever got made. Um, but, and here's where I really struggle. The ring is more memorable than champions is.
1: Yeah. Probably for all the wrong reasons. See, I feel I feel the shame, the big shame with this is, like you say, it's kind of in the middle. It needed to be, for what you've said, mm. either extraordinarily wholesome or yeah. extraordinarily funny. But it's yes. not. It's in the middle of both and that just won't work.
0: It's having its cake, it's eating it, and it's getting it everywhere. And it's, it just doesn't work. That's the problem, you know. You, wow. You're coming. You're coming away with a cake smeared face, effectively, and that's that. That's the real. It's, you, you know, you, you're getting it everywhere but your mouth. You know what I mean? It's, it's just not working. It just doesn't quite come together. Having said that, you know, there's a couple of laughs in there that do really land. I'm never. I'm, I'm never going to stop chuffling about that. I'll be with an extra crumby bit. Um, I say the interplay between Harrelson and Olsen great. Uh, the drama stuff works. To be fair, like so some of the some of the, the more dramatic moments of it do work. And, like I say, it's, it's a slightly more grown up SEN Mighty Ducks, for lack of a better term. It's a three star movie. You could maybe push it to three and a half. But I don't, no one's coming away from this thinking two thumbs up film of the week. You know what I mean? It's, and it's a
1: shame. Well, champions out in cinemas from today, if you want to go make your own mind up about that. So, in a moment, we are back and we are going to talk about Scream 6. Yes, it's out. And we'll be back to talk about it with Van, who's already seen it in just a minute. So we are back for one last ride then and uh, another brand new movie that is out today. We are heading over to New York City with Scream 6. Van, was this as good as the others? Well,
0: actually, I think it's better than several of the others. If I'm being honest, I'm. But I mean, Brilliant. I'm. I'm a very harsh critic on the Scream sequels. Like Scream is a masterpiece. Like Scream, the first Scream is game changing, genre redefining, industry changing. Agree. Uh, you know, because you know you can't underestimate, you can't minimize the impact that Scream had on the film industry in 1996 like it changed horror for a decade easy um some of the sequels most of the sequels i'm being honest have never quite lived up to the original for me Uh, you because you say you have the original trilogy you then have scream four which is kind of kind of sits in the middle and then you have five which starts a new series this is the second part of that series of course you have legacy players who appear through all of them. And the movies themselves do tell you, because of their, their nature of the rules, they do tell you what kind of movie it is. So Scream 2, obviously, is, oh, now we're a sequel. Scream 3 is, now we're a trilogy. Scream 4 is, oh, now we're a reboot. 5 was, now we're a requel, which I hate as a term. Uh, I much prefer reboot. And now 6, according to its own rules, is a franchise film. As we are told, this is a franchise film. Because I oh. say, oh, they're successful. There are certain rules in order to su- uh, to survive a franchise film. So the idea is now that after the events of the, fir- of, the first, of the last, of the fifth screen movie, uh, Melissa Barrera's character, Sam Carpenter, because she's named for John Carpenter, Sam Carpenter and her younger sister, Tara, played by the impossibly gorgeous Jenna Ortega from Wednesday, And uh, they they have moved to New York to try and move on with their lives, to to get over the events of the previous movie. They have taken with them their, I think, only two surviving mates from Woodsboro in the last movie, who happened to be the siblings and uh, adopted children of, you know, adopted niece and nephew of Randy from the original uh, trilogy. They've all gone to New York, only Ghostface is back. He's followed them there, and this time he's taking his killing spree to the streets of Manhattan. But, of course, it's a screen movie, so you have to have returning players. You have to have red herrings. You have to have a bit of a it. And, of course, you've got to have lots and lots of bodies. Have a listen. It's for you.
1: Strange that you and I have never spoken on the phone. This is long overdue.
0: place a shrine
1: did you miss me he's gonna keep coming after us maybe he gets to win this time we've got to lure him in gonna execute him why have they changed the infamous scream voice do you like scary movies all right
0: is worth noting now this is this is a proper legacy sequel as you can hear from the mention of the shrine there there is literally a shrine you see this in the marketing uh, there is a shrine with all of the co- ghost face costumes of all the previous Brilliant. killers and <clears throat> what you get is i would argue the first proper screen sequel that requires you to have seen all the others, particularly the one before. As in, this is very much a part two in a way that the Scream series has never quite done. Scream has always defaulted back to, now the characters move to another location and there's just another ghost, ghost face. Mm. And tenuously, here you have a movie that is more about legacy, that is more about franchise. There is a threat early on that the movie might go into some genuinely impactful and insightful new terrain, particularly in the way that it treats its central character as a survivor. Because the screen movies, the original screen movies always had this whole thing where Neff Campbell kind of just, you know, Sidney Prescott who isn't in this movie, is the first time she's not been in one of these, doesn't appear. And she was always treated in the sequels as she's the survivor. You know, she's the, the one who got away. Like, she's remembered as the one who got away. Here you have... Actually, the internet thinks she made it up, that it was all a hoax, that it was fake news, that actually she killed them all. It's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a great conspiracy theory. So you have, okay, what happens when you bring the internet into Scream? What happens right. when you go down the fake news route with Scream? You know, ooh, and doing it in New York. Okay, the home of Fox News, the home of Donald Trump. Like, there's something really to be done with this. They don't do that. No, they're keeping it a lot more insular, a lot more about Scream. And it's a shame, because I was was really up for that. The movie itself, however, what we do get, outside of that promise that they never quite fulfill, is a movie that's chock full of quite inventive kills, some quite good set pieces, a pretty great use of its setting in a way that Jason Voorhees should hang his head and weep over. Because my first thought with Scream Does Manhattan is, yeah, but I saw a Friday the 13th movie that promised they were going to do Manhattan. And instead, they just bitched out and spent the entire movie on the boat on the way there. Because that's what people do. They take boats to New York. Hmm. This, not that at all. This is Ghostface on the streets of New York, on the subway, in the alleys, in the, in the tenement blocks. And it, it's, it's great fun. It is exactly what you want it to be. Dermot Mulroney shows up. Always happy when Dermot Mulroney shows up in a movie. You've got returnees like Hayden Panatier, um, or Panatier, how do you say her name? Uh, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, who still, after all these movies, is not apologizing for that fringe. All of these movies have still <laughs> never apologized for that that fringe she had in 3 which is that's a that was a scream committed some crimes against cinema with that third installment and that fringe was top of the list but I will also say as well it's also very weird to me that Hayden Panatea, the cheerleader from heroes is now convincingly old enough to be like a 30 something FBI agent oh like, wow does that does that make you feel like Old, yeah, 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 that make you feel like you're getting on in years. The you know the little cheerleader from Heroes is like an adult FBI agent. Yeah, um, the, they, the, if anyone's wondering, yes, there is a return of the Billy Loomis de aging trick that they used in the last one as well, and done quite well. The movie still seems terrified to lean into the very obvious uh, influence that it's ripping off. Down to the fact that its character is its chief character is surnamed Carpenter, uh, so there is an element of some of Carpenter's most famous series that is referenced here, but never quite lent into as steadfast as you would hope they would. Uh, the influences are there on uh, they there you know you know with no bones. You can get them all. There's there's you know uh, nods and winks to other horror movies. There are you know little the screens on in the background that show some very specific influences and things like that. Jason Takes Manhattan is actually shown on a television behind one of the characters at one point <laughs> that is quite good. of all the
1: ones to That's play never. It,
0: Jason Takes Manhattan well done. Um, I say there's the stabs taken <laughs> stab <laughs> nice reference there the yeah. scream because uh, the fictional movie series in the scream series is stab and yeah. you get you get sort of nods back to that uh, not quite as heavy-handedly as you did last time. Um I, I thought it worked. I thought it worked very well. Of all of the sequels, I do think it's the. the I do think the sequels get progressively better from four onwards. I think two is a disaster. I think of the original trilogy, three is arguably the strongest uh, of, the, uh, of the sequels from the original trilogy. Four, I didn't particularly love, but from that point, it, they do seem to get consistently better. The stage is set here for yet another return of this series. Like, it's not like a cliffhanger thing, but there's, there's, you can see them picking this back up. There's enough to the universe. They've still never quite explained how the two sisters who lead this series now are have entirely different ethnicities despite the fact that we are told very explicitly that they share a mother and they have one very specifically different father because that's part of the mythology but it's never quite explained why one of them appears to be Asian and the other is Latina. So I'm going to leave that one to the uh, the conspiracy theorists out there. But I will say, of all the set pieces to put in a scream movie, the subway sequence in this might be one of my favorite to date, which is it's set on Halloween. You've got a subway car filled with Halloween costumes. How many people do you think are there in the screen? Of course there? you have. Absolutely brilliant. Loved it. It's my favorite action sequence on a subway, in a in a subway uh, a horror movie subway car since Predator 2. Wow. So take from that what you will. Fans are obviously going to lap this up, and they have every right to, because like I say, I think one of the strongest sequels, very easily one of the strongest sequels, I'm not going to rewatch it in a hurry, but I wouldn't rewatch any of the screen sequels in a hurry. I'll always rewatch the first one. Uh, non-fans will come to this and just enjoy a straightforward slasher. It's fine. Just you know, take from, take. You can pretty much get the mythology as it goes. But if you have seen the movies this is the legacy sequel that you've kind of been waiting for.
1: So it would be totally fine for me, for example. Who I mean, you said it follows on from Five. I haven't mm. seen Five, so I could watch this and still enjoy all the things you've enjoyed. I'll just miss out on a few of the references, right? To be honest with you, the only piece of
0: core mythology that's kind of pivotal to this is knowing that the central character is the daughter of the original killer from the first one. Like, that's a a thing that the series has now, which, incidentally, is lifted wholesale from Halloween 4, 5, and 6, I think. Uh, So, Halloween 4, 5, and 6, I think it's Jamie Strode, Daniel Harris's character. They have literally recycled that plot point, but they seem to refuse to make her a killer. Like, they have her continuously, like, in both of these movies, they constantly put her in this position of it kill or be killed. But they really don't want to do much more with it than that. And you're like, that is where you're really letting the side down. Because there's a chance to do something really new and exciting with that. Or at least like bring Nev Campbell back and have her revealed as the killer. Like, just just do one of those two things and do something different with this series before we get to Scream 7 where they're on a boat. Because that's clearly going to happen next time. And you know what I'm like with predicting nonsense sequels. So... They're clearly going to do Scream Seven like on a on a cruise ship or something. We've got or that a plane, to. or a plane. Scream on a plane. Scream it in the air. Oh <laughs> my go. god! Scream in the air. Like just 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 call it that. I would yeah. I would love that. Scream in the air. Like I would love that. Uh, but yeah, Scream Six is out today. Let's be honest. This is going to be the number one movie at the box office this weekend. Everyone who wants to see it is going to see it. There was this review was entirely pointless. But you know what, I got to see it, so goddamn, I'm going to review it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, I don't think there's going to be anybody that doesn't <laughs> exactly. enjoy watching this. It's just, oh, you know...
0: Oh, oh did, we, did we did we talk you around? Were you not going to see Scream 6 <laughs> after having seen the
1: other five? Oh, dear. Exactly, exactly that. Well, that's out in cinemas from today, as Van said. If you want to go and uh, watch it and make your own mind up, not, as Van said, you're going to need to be told. Um, now, that's all we've got time for this week. We are going to be back next Friday. We're going to be looking at Pearl... What's
0: this one about? Pearl is the prequel to a movie we reviewed together, uh, X by Ty West, which was about the uh, the the porn makers, the the porn production crew who went and uh, I think it's in the eighties who go and make a bunch of uh, movies on like a a farm, rent a farmhouse. This is the prequel to the kooky old lady who owns. Yeah, well, no, they made it kind of around the same time. There's a third one coming as well called Maxine. This is about the kooky old lady. Psycho who owned the farm only she's now played in her younger years by the lead from that previous movie Mia Goth right. whom I love dearly we're going to be talking about her in another movie in a few weeks as well called Infinity Pool she is the new screen Queen baby and I am here for it
1: okay well we'll talk about that next week uh, we've got Hallelujah
0: yeah, new uh, adaptation of the Alan Bennett play. I think this stars Jennifer Saunders. Uh, if I uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we have also got next week the horror movie play Dead. Shazam is back finally. I don't know if anyone's actually going to care that Shazam's back because is there really ever any excitement for a DC movie nowadays? Like, I, I it's the, fading. The, it's fading. The first Shazam is the best. Like movie of the original DCEU so you know I'm, yeah. I'm here for it I, I love the first Shazam I want to see the sequel I'd rather that the guy playing Shazam wasn't like a bigot and a maniac evidently but we're going to gloss over all that because his dad died the same day that he put all that on Twitter anyway we can find out when Fury of the Gods opens next week and one that's not on our sheet I've been saving this for you Adam because I, I, I know how much you, you you'll be looking forward to this Top Three. <laughs> It's not Top Gun 3, sadly. <laughs> but it's, it's going to be about a cinematically explosive. We have the new Netflix Ooh. documentary to talk about next week. Money Shot, the story of Pornhub, is out next week. So we have oh, that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: Brilliant. Well, that's I can't something I most... Yeah, I can't wait either. And that's not coming from a smutty side. I'm just really well, intrigued. I'll be really honest.
0: I'm mostly looking forward to seeing who they get as talking heads. In it, like who they interview, and just be like, oh, that's whatever happened to her, you know? It's just, <laughs> just gonna be—it's gonna be one of those, isn't it? It's like, oh, Jenna Sativa still alive? That's good to know, you know. One of those things, actually. Whatever did happen to Jenna Sativa? She was my fave, anyway. Never mind. We'll find out next. Hopefully, she turns <laughs> up in Money in Money Shot, the the Pornhub story, courtesy of Netflix. Incidentally, true story about that, by the way. Netflix sent out a press release for for Money Shot, the Pornhub story accidentally left the uh, CC link open, so everyone who replied to it responded to everyone who had been sent the email. It was a terrific morning. It was great. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. And I'll tell you something for nothing. You will be shocked at how many of my peers get very, very squeamish as soon as you use the word porn
1: oh really I'll tell you I think this is going to be an interesting movie anyway a documentary but just to find out about the Wonga how much money is made in that industry not much not much since OnlyFans I don't think (laughs) that's very true alright well we've got all of those to talk about next week um, on Offscreen so until then I've been Adam Ball I've been Van Conner and we shall return